A lot of us just barely fired up the coffee pot, getting ready for another day, kind of get the motor started with a good cup of coffee. Joining us on the line is the coffee guy, Professor Thomas Merritt from the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Laurentian University, my old school in Sudbury, Ontario. Professor Merritt Thomas, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. I, I'm sorry. I'm laughing. It is minus 20 here. Oh, um, my. I just I just came in from a bike ride, and I'm waiting for my nostrils to thaw out. Uh, and it's, what, you said it was seven degrees there. So we're, we're in a slightly different world. Indeed. We had Don Drummond, a former economist with the TD Bank, on with us yesterday morning at roughly this time as well, Tom. And he said he's in, he's in Ottawa, and it was six yesterday morning. He, too, laughed when we began oh. our program. Because it was also minus 20 outside his house yesterday morning. <laughs> Chilly. So, so we totally live in different worlds. Uh, but mind you, when it's minus 20 outside, you step inside, that cup of coffee is going to taste awfully good, isn't it? It's delicious. You have uh, just as, uh, written a new piece for theconversation.com entitled The Quest for Delicious Decaf Coffee Could Change the Appetite for GMOs. Well, Professor Merritt, it's the delicious decaf coffee part of the title of this article that actually made me laugh out loud, and you knew I might because I have yeah. yet to taste one. Have you? Yeah, kind of. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> decaf is better. Um, and, you know, when I was a kid, uh, decaf was terrible. And, yes. and, you know, it's just, it's been a running joke since, what, the, you know, forever. Um, well, you wrote with, about death b- before decaf. Some sure. people just not and, a and There's also that, that mindset, this sort of, you know, almost macho coffee thing that, that I would die before I would drink decaf. Right. But I think some of that comes to the fact that you would die before you drink the decaf because the decaf tended to be really terrible. Mm-hmm. So, so now, so what can we do about that? Yeah, obviously, the word got through to the coffee, the decaf makers, that despite the fact that some people drink it because they don't like the caffeine effect, they still didn't like the taste very much. So, yeah, has yeah. the have the coffee makers sort of together collectively improved the, the taste quality of decaf? Yeah, they have, and, and and people have been working on this since the 1940s. I mean, right now, decaf is something like a two billion dollar business. I mean, there, there's a lot of reason, uh, just economic reason, to 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 create a better decaf. There's a lot of health reasons to create a better decaf. Not everybody responds really well to caffeine. Mm-hmm. People get you know different levels of anxiety, or or they just want to sort of scale back the caffeine, especially later in in the day. So, you know, what can we do about that? And, and all coffee that we grow commercially at the moment contains caffeine. It's just, it's the nature of the beast. So we have to remove that caffeine, and it's the removal that, that's the tricky part, because it's really hard to just remove caffeine. You either just subtly alter things that are in the coffee and you change the taste, or you, you just inadvertently take out things that give coffee that taste that we all love. Right. Now, is, so is, a- the, is it possible? Is, is there, uh, I know that, again, our techniques have improved with time, yeah. but let's go back to when decaf became a thing in the first place, because at the time, the taste, I, re- I recall uh, initially uh, uh, experimenting with decaf, and just the absence of coffee taste was what right. struck me more than anything else. So what did they do to remove the caffeine that took out the taste, too? Yeah, so, I mean, basically it was just a chemical extraction. And so you, you would take a green coffee bean, you would soak it in something, and the hope was to take all the caffeine out and then leave as much of everything else in there. Okay. And then what you soak it with, you know, the different things, um, change, has changed through time. So right now, sort of the gold standard of, of decaffeination is called Swiss water. It's actually based, I think, in Vancouver. It's in B.C., the, the company is. Okay. Um, and 
they create this green coffee extract that is it's water, um, and it, it has all the flavor in it. And so when you soak the, the you know, all the, the molecules give the, the coffee flavor in it. So when you soak the beans in that, the caffeine comes out, but the things that give coffee its taste stay. And I can tell you I've had a very good Swiss water decaf cup of coffee. Okay. I will not pretend to tell you that it's the best cup of coffee I've ever had, but mm-hmm. it's not a bad coffee. And it's sort of where we're at in, in the technology of decaf at the moment. And our local roaster here has a handful of Swiss water decaf. And, it, you know, it's an easy little label to, to look for. But, I mean, the other thing that with the, the decaffeination is the things that we were initially using, decaf was initially created with benzene, which is, you know, almost soaking green coffee beans in lighter fluid. Right. And we've, we've gotten better since then. Um, but it's still not perfect. It's not great. It's not the, the cup of coffee that we really sort of yearn for. And we say, oh, you know what, I really want that 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 oomph, that first cup of coffee. Right. Well, you talk about the two uh, species of coffee uh, in, in your piece, which are Arabica and Robusta, and, yeah. and, but there, there's no species of coffee called decaf. So it is always, <laughs> and it always has been, uh, artificial. So let's connect another dot here, Professor Merritt, because your article talks about the quest for this alleged delicious decaf cup of coffee could change the appetite for GMOs. So let's connect the GMO dots to this conversation about decaffeinated coffee. That's right. So that's, that's where I think that, that things got interesting as I was trying to write this piece. Um, and fundamentally, what it comes down to is the challenge that, that we face as, as a species, not, not even as a, a, a country or a culture, but we have to feed the globe. And the, the global population is growing. Um, our ability to feed that population has been growing, but is sort of plateauing out. And so what are we going to do about that? And there's sort of a consensus in the scientific world that the way that we can address this difference between how much food we have and how many people we have is, th- is through things like genetic engineering. So changing crops and basically just taking modern agriculture but taking it a step forward and, and create or using modern genetic tools with that. Mm-hmm. But as I think you probably know, there's a lot of resistance to that. And so Very people, much. People are hesitant to to consume genetically modified, genetically altered plants, although we've been genetically altering plants in one form or another as long as we've had agriculture. So why why, why is the anxiety, Tom? Why are people so cranked up about this? They call it Franken-foods, and they won't go anywhere near it. Yeah, And, and, and honestly, in the same way that some people won't go anywhere near decaf. And so... Part of the problem is that it, the, the facts seem to say that genetically altering foods is, is safe, and, and they, we should be watching this, we should be conscious about it, we should be very conscientious about the way that we're using these tools, but the, the, the safety is there. There's a consensus in the scientific world. So why isn't that sort of rolling over into the, to the public? And part of it is that we, as, as a species, as people, we're not great always at listening to facts, just because things make sense at a fact level doesn't mean that we embrace them. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that, that we have to do is find ways to persuade people that, the, that, that they should be promoting things like genetically modified foods. And so we can do that by addressing people's hearts instead of their minds and saying, okay, look, here are things that we can do with genetic engineering. And one of the things that we can do with genetic engineering is we can actually create a decent cup of decaf. And, and I don't know that this is necessarily going to change somebody's mind about whether genetically altered foods are safe, but it's a way to have a conversation. And if you can't talk to people about the issues around it, you're not going to make any headway. So how do you start those conversations? And one of the ways you start the conversations is, is things like genetically modified 
or genetically engineered is usually a little less stressful way to put it. Right. Coffee. Right. And we can, we can absolutely create that decaf through genetic engineering. And so would that mean uh, the growing of a particular species or strain of coffee bean that is simply uh, caffeine-free, ultimately? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would. Which is, you know, honestly, at some level, it's like, well, that's, that's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are a couple of species of, of there really are, there are two species of coffee, as you mentioned, that, that make up over 95% of, the, of commercial coffee. And there's some naturally occurring varieties of coffee that don't have caffeine. They've got a mutation in them. And so a small change in the genetic code that turns off that caffeine pathway. Ah. And so that creates this, this, <clears throat> this coffee without caffeine. Okay. But, I mean, if, if, if you drink coffee, you know that, that there's subtle differences between different coffees. Joined by Professor Thomas Merritt from the Department of Chemistry at Laurentian University in uh, Ontario, Sudbury, Ontario, where outside his house this morning, it's minus 20, unlike here in Vancouver, where it's plus 7 outside the radio place. Professor Merritt's most recent contribution to theconversation.com is the quest for delicious decaf coffee could change the appetite for GMOs. And just before we went to the news break, Professor Merritt, you and I were talking about how GMOs have this terrible stigma in some sectors of the population, and that uh, alone is uh, going to be a challenge for the coffee industry to overcome. But then we got into a little bit about the technique of exactly how a a, a genetically engineered uh, coffee bean would would happen, and how far are we away from any um, experimental uh, growing uh, or modification actually taking place? Yeah, that's a great question. So where, where are we in this path towards a genetically engineered coffee plant? Yeah. We're there. Um, so it, it's been done. Um, it, you know, interestingly, the way that the, the initial set of experiments doing this was in Robusto, which is sort of the secondary uh, coffee bean in, in the world market. Um, and the changes that were made were changes to make that, that plant more drought resistant, more heat resistant. The, the globe is getting warmer. Places that grow coffee are, are going to be changed. The, the climate there is changing. And so people were looking at ways to make a coffee that was uh, more environmentally robust, that could grow in a greater variety of conditions. And they showed that they could do that in the lab. Um, and so that, that's absolutely been done. And we could take that same technique and we could create that decaffeinated coffee. So, you know, I mentioned that, that in Arabica, there are some naturally occurring plants that have this mutation that turns off the, the caffeine pathway. Um, it just, it's not in a really good bean. And there's so much variation, even within Arabica, in different strains of coffee. So what we can do, though, is we can look at the change that's there naturally, that naturally occurring, and we can actually create that or a very similar change using genetic engineering. But we could do that in, in a high-quality strain of coffee and almost instantly create that decaf. And so we can create in, 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 the decaf by hybridizing, okay. which is traditionally what we do in agriculture. That's, we take two strains, two lines, two different species, and we cross them together. Exactly, yeah. And that's going to take about 35 years. Oh. And so we, it, it just it hasn't been commercially viable so far. The, the genetic engineering, you still have to grow up the coffee plant to, to production, but we're talking about a process that takes five or six years, not 35 years. And so we are sort of in that period where people are trying to grow up those plants and, and see what they can find. Now, whether somebody is actually 
engineered that Arabic yet to, to make that decaf. I don't know that. Um, but the techniques are absolutely there, and they, they were published quite a few years ago, so I'm sure that it's in the pipeline. So as long as, so, so we now have a sort of parallel activity going on because we have a certain group of uh, scientists like yourself who have dedicated themselves uh, to this development of a genetically modified coffee bean that will be tasty as all get out and lack caffeine, the perfect decaf coffee. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to have to deal with uh, the short-term uh, continuing of extraction, aren't we? We're going to have to uh, continue to improve our technique. And you talked about the one that was uh, from from British Columbia, the uh, the the water, the Swiss, yeah, Swiss water. water. That's right. Uh, and is that probably? I, I know I've, I've heard this referred to in the past. Is that? Uh, and I think the, the 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 applause that I heard about it was the fact that it's basically non-chemical. It's it, unlike the original decaf, which was de- decaffeinated with some pretty tough chemicals. Uh, yeah. the, the Swiss water is is it, they try to be the exact opposite of that. Yeah, and so that's that's a really great point. And so the the chemical extraction has changed through time. So Swiss water is based on a water extraction. Now, I mean, keep in mind, water is a chemical. It's just the chemical that makes up half of our body. Right, right, right. But but it, it's it's that pro, that process we refer to as natural decaffeination because it's water. It's not benzene, which is the the early solvent that that was involved with that. Mm-hmm. And you know, like I said, decaf is a two billion dollar business. So there's a lot of of interest in creating that that better bean. And so people are constantly tweaking the, these processes to to make a better cup of decaf. Um, when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, so ten years ago, almost eleven years ago, we were on decaf for nine months. Um, and we we would treat ourselves to a pot of coffee in the morning, the head caffeinated coffee, and then we'd switch over to decaf. And you know it wasn't bad, but right. I do think that ten years later it's actually a little bit better. And oh, okay. We're working to you know to make those subtle changes. So, by the way, just a curiosity question: when you when your wife was pregnant and you entered the decaf mode, was that something that she did voluntarily, or had she been directed by her physician, for example, to avoid caffeine? Yeah, and that's that's really a great point, and, and that was a suggestion that came from the physician. You know, you should really limit the amount of caffeine that you're consuming when you're pregnant. Caffeine is a drug. It it is the most consumed psychoactive drug in the world. Right. But it's still a drug, and and we need to really be aware of that. And you know, waking up to that first cup of coffee in the morning is fantastic. Two, three, maybe four cups of coffee a day. There are actually really good studies showing that there are health benefits to to doing that. <clears throat> but beyond that. You really want to be careful with the amount of caffeine that you consume. And some people have to be really careful. And that's what's driving decaf is for people that really can't have consume or can't have caffeine, sorry, um, or those of us that are just trying to sort of taper the caffeine off uh, you know, limit the amount that we're consuming. Can we find that better cup of coffee? Yeah, I'm just uh, looking at some emails. The email box is always open. Listeners know that. Sterling at cknw.com. Diana Lynn says, good morning. When I drank coffee, I preferred brewed decaf. I found 100% caffeine coffee to be bitter. Uh, have, have I, she asked me, have I tried half and half, half of each caffeine and decaf? And right. I have it. I have it. Have you? Uh, that, well, you would have. You're the coffee guy. What's that yeah, like? Yeah, so it's a... I I have not, but this is this was the coffee in my parents' house, maybe for the last ten years, um, and so they they had a a bin of beans, and then they had a bin next to it that said half and half, and that was their standard, and that was a way that that they found that they got a you know a better cup of coffee. I mean, caffeine does absolutely have a flavor to it, and so there 
there's there is something to be said for you know the different tastes. Honestly, I think if your listener was, was having a bitter cup of coffee that was caffeinated, it was probably time to find a better bean um, than necessarily to move to decaf. But moving to decaf has its health benefits. I wanted to ask you also about instant coffee. It's not as popular as it once was, but for some, right. it still works. You know, it's just a teaspoonful of uh, and into break out the hot water and, and off you go. Now they have instant in regular and in decaf. Is, right. the, is the process for instant coffee the same as... Uh, extraction particularly as it would be for normally brewed coffee yeah it's going to be a slight <clears throat> sorry a slightly different process um that that's involved with that because you you but the the initial per push to create decaf came at the same time as the initial push to create instant coffee okay. so those two were sort of hand in hand i gotta tell you i mean i i, I hate to admit this on air but um Last December, January, before the travel lockdown, my family was in New Zealand for three weeks, and most of the hotel rooms that we stayed in had little packets of instant coffee. Oh, boy. Yeah. And we thought, well, that's terrible. And they were really good. Oh, how about and that? Really cool. well, they, so I ended up bringing some of them back, and I, I haven't been able to find them here. And, and, you know, really good is probably overstating a bit. But if, if you're in a hotel, generally the standards of coffee are not super high. Mm-hmm. And these instant coffees in the hotel were as good as any hotel coffee that I was getting. There was an instant. Um, so, you know, the, the coffee is such a big deal. People are trying to, to, to create better this, better that. I can remember Starbucks actually had a coffee extract in the 90s when I was a grad student. And it wasn't a bad cup of instant coffee. And I think we've gotten even better since then. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's interesting stuff. That, and I'm glad I brought that up and included it. Uh, one final question to you, Professor Merritt. And that's, it's back to your statement a couple of moments ago about talkie being, uh, coffee being uh, the world's most popular drug. Because it is a drug. And it does have a capacity to deliver, among other things, uh, a, a, a little phenomenon we humans call the jitters. And a lot of us get <laughs> the jitters. And, and that usually, once you start to to feel that you go okay i've topped out for coffee that's my last cup today so th- right. i guess the trick is that if, if that's the cup that gives you the jitters stop uh, after the cup before it right that's right yeah yeah don't, don't go, go don't go quite that far take a step back and but it's just caffeine right it's that's the that's the active effect of caffeine on the human body yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you're just, you're bringing so much caffeine. And, and, you know, a little bit of caffeine is a great way to wake up in the morning. Um, if you're drinking enough coffee that you really are feeling that bouncing around, then yeah, maybe scale it back a little bit. And, and maybe try some of these decafs that are out there. I think if, if your opinion of decaf is based on 10, 20 years ago, give some of the, 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 the new decafs a try and see what you think. Okay, because uh, it has uh, it, uh, it has improved with time, and, and there's no question about that. Uh, Thomas Merritt, thanks very much for this. It's great to have you back on the show. I hope we've warmed up your morning a little more than it, you feel a little warmer than you did after coming in from that bike ride in the minus 20 Sudbury Sunday morning. Uh, it's great to have you back, and, and we look forward to an opportunity to do, the, uh, to do this all over again. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to chat. There's Professor Thomas Merritt from the Department of Chemistry at Laurentian University in Sudbury. If you'd like to read his piece on coffee, by the way, it is at theconversation.com. And the article is entitled, The Quest for Delicious Decaf Coffee Could Change the Appetite for GMOs. Very uh, kind of a loaded statement there.
Dr. Matthew Strauss is a critical care physician and professor of medicine at Queen's University School of Medicine in Kingston, Ontario, and is one of the first signatories here in Canada to something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which is what brought Dr. Matthew Strauss to our attention and our program a couple of months ago, as we welcome him back this morning for an update on lockdowns in, in his home province of Ontario and his uh, personal political ambitions. Dr. Matt, welcome back. Good morning, sir. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. Uh, tell us a little bit, first of all, about the status of, of Ontario's lockdown this weekend. Uh, Premier Ford has uh, exercised uh, his power, and uh, considerable portions of the province are locked down. And about a 20-minute drive down the road to the east of you in the province of Quebec, uh, Premier Legault has imposed curfews. So in both the largest provinces of the country this weekend, it's pretty tense. What's the status? Yeah, I I, uh, I struggle to find a, a better word to describe it than totalitarian. It is a it is a total lockdown. Uh, so the, the word applies. Uh, we are not to leave our homes uh, unless it's for some essential reason. So of course I work at the hospital. That's an essential reason. Sure, getting groceries is an essential reason. Beyond that, we are not to leave our homes. If I walk my dog, I'm not to walk the dog more than one kilometer away from my home. Um, none of this, in my view, is science based. It's not evidence based. Um, and it is a very severe restriction of our civil liberties. Uh, the, uh, the the politicians will point to, to the fact that they have to go to these, as some would call them, draconian measures because there's simply a, not enough of a buy-in uh, in terms of the general population where they don't have to go to this these uh, extreme lengths of uh, regulation. Uh, so how do you get the, the, the bulk of the population to buy in short of doing what they've done? I, I don't follow that logic in the slightest. So if, if the general public is not buying into mild restrictions or moderate restrictions, why would they buy into severe restrictions? That, that, that argument holds no water for me. And also my focus is not on, is the public buying in, is the public not buying in? My, my focus throughout all this, both in my clinical work and the kind of public advocacy that I've been doing, is on saving as many lives from dying of COVID-19 as possible or right. from all the other reasons someone might die. The, the, the simple and the sad fact is there's no high-quality, peer-reviewed scientific literature showing that these measures save lives. So I'm not really interested in convincing the public to buy into measures that aren't proven to work. Well, let's take a look at something that you have done that is uh, almost the opposite in terms of, to, of what you would consider wasting time to try to convince people to buy into something you don't particularly approve of in the first place. You've gone to other models in other parts of the world to see how uh, jurisdictions that haven't imposed lockdowns have worked. And you've, we talked, you and I, uh, Dr. Matt, talked about Sweden last time we were on the radio together. And you've also gone to, of all places, South Dakota. What's that about? Right. So uh, the two states that I, I, I like to talk about most are South Dakota and Florida. Now, South Dakota took an approach that I do not recommend. I am not for a let it rip, let's do nothing strategy. Okay. But that more or less is what South Dakota did. Like, it, it's, it's kind of the Wild West. Um, and they took a, a, a very, uh, I, I think radical is the right word. I don't mean it pejoratively. But they took a stance that we are not going to do anything. No business closures, no mass closures, no, no stay-at-home orders. Right. Um, and what, I, what has been observed in South Dakota is they had a massive wave this winter, uh, and now that wave has bottomed out. 
So it took about three and a half months. Uh, they went up all the way um, and then down all the way. After that kind of let it rip strategy, which again, I do not, uh, I do not propose, um, I, I've, I'm asking people to, to wonder why did the cases in South Dakota collapse? They did nothing and it still collapsed. And, and the answer is um, we can't be 100% certain, but herd immunity is part of it. And, um, and just the fact that these, these epidemics do come in waves and human activity, or our, the restrictions we put on don't explain necessarily what happened. So if you're at the peak of your epidemic and you put on these restrictions, it may have been the case that it was going to come down. So we have to consider South Dakota as kind of a control group in this experiment. I like to talk about Florida because they did what I do recommend. They protected the elderly. So they did have restrictions in place to protect people who are very likely to die of COVID-19, but they let healthy people get on with their lives and, and be in a position where they can help protect the elderly. Um, and Florida has had uh, some of the best outcome data for any large state. Uh, and, and they're open. Their, their businesses are open. Um, uh, they're, they're, there's no shelter in place order. And, and, and the people are much healthier than than uh, than we are now. Not surprising, of course, that Florida would would take the approach with respect to the elderly, given that that it is of of the fifty probably the most popular retirement state in the union, uh, and so their yeah. their their uh, elderly population is disproportionately high. So of course they would have to uh, uh, introduce measures to protect that s- segment of the population. Now, Florida, uh, interestingly, Doctor Matt is taking a lot of flack uh, from people who say, "Well, no." That because uh, you know they were showing us pictures of people going to the beach, for example, over Christmas holidays, and how that was all terribly wrong, and some beaches were closed and some weren't, and it was a kind of a hodgepodge approach. Um, that's true. So uh, the when I say that Florida um, took a particular strategy, I mean the state government. Right. The state government did not institute uh, a, a mask mandate. It didn't institute business closures. There are, there have been county by county. Um, efforts, yes. but my, my understanding is, by and large, those, those county by county efforts are not actually legally enforceable without the, the governor's say so. So, take us back, if you would, Doctor Strauss, to the Great Barrington Declaration and our conversation on this radio program a couple of months ago. Actually, a little longer than that. the The essence of the Great Barrington Declaration uh, is uh, is that lockdowns don't work; they cause more harm than good. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Right. Well, so let's talk about the harms first. Um, the, the, probably the most distressing piece of evidence came across my, my purview uh, just a couple days ago. So head trauma in infants, uh, come, uh, a hospital admissions for head trauma in, in children under one years old in the Ottawa region has just about quadrupled in the last few months. Um, so we and but we've known this since the beginning that domestic violence uh, has been more and more of a problem uh, as people are. Uh, pushed to the edge, you know, losing, losing their employment, losing their social connections, and then uh, forced to stay in their homes. Um, that was one of the hardest, it was the hardest article I've, I've had to read all year. Um, and, and unfortunately, it, it, it was rather predictable. Um, so we humans uh, need social connection. We need our support networks. Uh, we need to have jobs. We need to um, see our faith communities. And when you take all that away, the health consequences are 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 massive and unfortunately predictable. So that's the harms that the um, Great Barrington Declaration 
was interested in preventing. Uh, and then in terms of, of lockdowns not working, um, th- there is only more and more mounting evidence. So I have been tweeting, there, there's um, a paper by Chowdhury et al. that shows lockdowns don't uh, save any lives, by Sidner et al., uh, by Leffler et al. They're, they're, we're a year into this, and, and nobody has a scientific paper to show that those places that went into hard lockdown saved any more lives than the places that didn't. And so as a result, uh, why uh, then are, do you find so many Canadians, particularly in our two most populous provinces, on side with the measures taken by Premiers Ford and uh, the, your colleague in Quebec, his colleague in Quebec? Right. So there's a, there's a few things happening. One, like at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know what this was. We didn't know how this virus would behave. We didn't know, myself included, in March, the, the, the published figures were that the mortality rate was going to be about 5%. Yeah. It, it's now seeming that it's more like 0.3%. But that panic that was stoked when we didn't know what this was and, and who it was dangerous to, um, that panic started a kind of vicious cycle where the public's yelled at politicians to do more and the politicians have yelled at the public to, to, to restrict themselves more. And um, we somehow have to break out of this panic cycle. Um, part of the panic cycle and part of why um, people aren't getting, I think, information that they need to make their own risk assessments uh, is that there's been extraordinary resistance to physicians such as myself who have tried uh, to speak up and just point out the, the logic and the data and the facts. In our, in our own province, um, Roman Baber is an MPP, yes. who's frankly a hero. You know, he escaped the Soviet Union. He knows what um, government control looks like when it's taken too far. Uh, he wrote a completely well-referenced, science-based letter to the Premier saying these are the harms of lockdown, and he was ejected from the caucus that same day. That's right. So, yeah. so folks who are sticking their necks out, um, be they politicians or uh, medical people or academics, are at risk of professional blowback because of this herd mentality and, and, and panic cycle that we're in. And, but I don't see a way out of it except that we just need to keep sticking our necks out. Dr. Matthew Strauss is a critical care physician and assistant professor of medicine at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, You're talking about uh, the lockdowns and the negative impact of lockdowns on our mental health, particularly uh, our children. The whole point of of lockdowns and and our approach to the COVID uh, and our response to COVID was always predicated on the need to protect the most vulnerable and that protection net seems to have been expanded to pretty much everyone in the population. But back to the point that you and your colleagues who have signed on to the Great Barrington Declaration made originally, which was the focus should be almost exclusively on the most vulnerable in our population. And with regard to that group, how are we doing? So not well. Um, I I believe in Ontario, uh, 80% of the COVID deaths have been in somebody who's in uh, have been in folks who are in some kind of group living situation, be right. that retirement home or long-term care. Um, the Toronto Star published an, an investigation showing that more people over 90 have died of COVID-19 in Ontario than under 80. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's this disease has by far and away uh, been killing our elders, our grandchildren, sorry, our grandparents. Yes. Um, and, and taking kids out of school and canceling, junior hockey uh, is is 
just not an effective way of, of, of helping those folks. What I've, what I've tried to liken it to is like, this is, this is textbook public health type stuff that we, we don't give HIV prevention meds uh, to uh, high school seniors on prom night because that's a, that's actually a very low risk situation for, um, for contracting HIV. Right. Um, we, we, we ought to be targeting public health interventions to the folks who are actually um, vulnerable from uh, the death and destruction that an infectious disease can bring. I'm back. I'm just I'm struggling with the part of the Florida conversation we had in sure. in the last segment, because, again, uh, with the with the largest, perhaps one of the largest percentage of retirement uh, retired people in their state. Obviously, there's been a tremendous amount of focus on the elderly in the state of Florida, but not so much on everybody else. Uh, it's the ancillary numbers I'm looking at. How did their numbers uh, with respect to dealing with the elders in their population compare to ours? and then versus the rest of the population? Uh, I, I don't have that kind of um, uh, cross-referenced uh, age bracket by age bracket okay. uh, data at my fingertips, I'm sorry to say. Well, that's okay. I wanted to ask you, uh, completely changing gears here, I wanted to ask about uh, something you revealed to my producer, Andrew Ferreira, a couple of weeks ago. You have political ambitions. Uh, and I entitled this segment of the show, Frustrated Physician Runs for Parliament, Dr. Matt. So tell us why. Right. I don't know if ambition is the right word. It might be um, complete insanity. Uh, I... Um I had zero intention of doing anything like this two weeks ago. Uh, literally, uh, what are we now, Sunday? So two and a half weeks ago. Right. Um, so two and a half weeks ago, I watched our premier deliver his new lockdown announcement. It was clear to me that um, he had no idea what he was doing, uh, that, that their government is completely floundering. Uh, and so much of what was said at that press conference made no sense and was uh, so the, the solicitor general uh, literally said, "We are going to persecute you." I think she meant prosecute you. Right, right. you but I, but it, I, I think persecute was in fact uh, the correct term to use. I don't think she meant to use it. So I was, I was horrified. I was upset. I, I felt like I've been doing nine months of trying to speak about data and values and consent and civil liberties, and here was uh, my government squashing all of that and I, I had no idea what could be done and, and so out of desperation I, I thought I would run um, I thought I would run for federal parliament and it, it, I I can't I, I I have the feeling of someone in the back of a plane uh, who's starting to wonder if we're pointed at the ground and whether the people in the cockpit uh, have any flight training whatsoever mm. uh, and that's kind of been my concern. I think that, look, I had 400 Twitter followers a year ago. Um, I, now it's 13,000. And I, I, I had no intention of doing that. I just was speaking the truth uh, on social media. Literally, my eyewitness, uh, the first tweet I had that went viral was just my eyewitness testimony about what was happening in my hospital mm, right. um, and how that was not what was being portrayed in the media. Right. So I think if we have a politics in this country where you can't be open and honest with voters, then I, I'm not sure that you have a democracy. If memory serves uh, me right, you're running in, uh, in what used to be Sir John A. Macdonald's old writing. Uh, I'm assuming you're running no, no, for... No, no, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, so I, I'm, I'm not a candidate yet. I'm seeking a nomination. I but see. I, I'm seeking a nomination in my hometown uh, in Kitchener. 
Oh, in Kitchener, I see. Okay, yeah. yeah. And look, like, look, I don't, I don't know if it'll work. I think traditionally, you're supposed to be out selling memberships uh, for the last six months before you do something like this. Uh, so, there, and uh, yeah, I, I understand that politicians are a certain breed who had maybe longer term career ambitions in politics. This, this is really not the case. This is. This is an act of desperation. Like I, I can't, I can't sit idly by. Well, good for you. Good for you. Watch the prime minister fly this plane into the ground. Yeah, uh, you can follow Dr. Matt Strauss by the way on Twitter and join the l- growing crowd. It, he he's at Strauss S T R A U S S at Strauss underscore Matt on Twitter. And uh, the first thing you're going to see is this is very hard to read. I'm sorry, I have to ask you to. And this goes into the unintended consequences and and uh, domestic violence aspects of lockdowns. Dr. Matt Strauss, we're out of time, sir. I'm grateful for yours again. Good to. Have have you back on the show we'll do it again thanks sterling dr matt strauss in kitchener and kingston ontario he's going to run in kitchener it's getting a little confusing our next guest says there are about six hundred thousand british columbians living with at least one disability and about 25 percent of those in this province who are over the age of 15 self-identify as having a disability so okay here we are many many months into covid19 suppose you are one of those disabled persons who are uh, as has become the case with everyone working from home, including the government, uh, a lot of these people have become web-dependent under COVID for uh, contact with the government, for services and information. And if you have a disability, how is that contact going? Well, our next guest says probably not very well, and it sure could be going a whole lot better. It's a pleasure to welcome Dave Hale to the program. Mr. Hale is the founder and partner of Crafts and Crew, and he joins us from Ottawa this morning to talk about accessibility in a digital age. Dave Hale, good morning and welcome, sir. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Dave. Talk to us a little bit about web accessibility and how in the province of Ontario, it's now the law. Uh, yeah, happy to. So, um, you know, our, our uh, company, we've been designing and building enterprise websites for uh, the last 10 years okay. and, and probably for the last seven or eight of those. Um, you know, it, when we receive a, a request for services or a request for proposal from our clients, uh, very often, if not all the time, uh, because of the size and scope of the organizations we're working with, there will be a, a you know, a, a nod to or a requirement for meeting uh, various accessibility guidelines for the web. So the, the most common and, and the kind of international standard is, is called WCAG, which stands for the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And here in Canada, uh, you know, there's Basically, they're on the, the second iteration of these guidelines, so it's 2.0. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's various levels where, where an organization is expected to meet depending on uh, certain requirements. So there's level A, double A, triple A. And if you're someone like the federal government, you might be aiming for a triple A uh, standing. Uh, but basically, here in Ontario, many years ago, I think about seven years ago, uh, the provincial government announced that uh, by January 1st, 2021 uh, uh, specific companies, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically a, a public 
companies, not meaning like public on the stock market, meaning like uh, government agencies, departments, uh, and loosely affiliated government services such as uh, hospitals, healthcare networks, okay. colleges, universities, etc. Mm-hmm. They had to meet WCAG 2.0 double A guidelines, and this all got kind of wrapped up in what's called AOTA, which is the Accessibility uh, for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. So. This was to come in in force January 1st, 2021. And like I said, there was many years of heads up uh, that this was coming. Uh, now, because of the pandemic, uh, the provincial government has basically uh, declared that the reporting period uh, to demonstrate compliance with the with the act has been extended to June. But, you know, what we're trying to explain to people is that, uh, you know, you've You've bought yourself some time, but hopefully people aren't viewing it that way and, and still uh, taking this as a, as a serious uh, uh, concern for their business. Okay, let's let's take this in small bites because this is a brand new information for a lot of people, Dave. Uh, for example, uh, would the government of Ontario, we're talking about the government of Canada, would the government of Ontario, where this is now a, a, ser- a serious guideline, if not a law that has been extended for enforcement purposes for a few extra months. Uh, so would the government of Ontario, for example, have the highest standard uh, in terms of accessible website already? Would that be part of do as we do? So, you know, I, provincial uh, services, digital services and products, I will say, are, are you know, arguably some of the, the most accessible. Um, anyone who's been to a, a provincial website, especially here in Ontario, and, and BC has made a similar commitment uh, by 2024 right. um, for all government uh, services. So, you know, I think governments, because of this mandate, are the ones that are actually doing a good job of, of leading the way here. Um, so in the province of Ontario, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a provincial-mandated uh, website or digital product app, et cetera, et cetera, that, that aren't meeting the guidelines. But what I would say, and not just me, many people uh, reference this, is that meeting uh, AOTA or meeting the WCAG 2.0 AA standard is good but not great, meaning if you actually speak to a person, say, with significant sight loss or blindness, they will actually tell you that that standard is not actually enough for them to uh, be able to have a, a full digital experience that is, you know, uh, actually allows them to, to um, uh, uh, not suffer significant setbacks. Can we talk a little bit about what these guidelines would be? For example, if I'm a small business person and uh, I'm going to put up a website because I know that if I don't, I'm not going to last. It's just gotten to that. So now my website, in addition to uh, propping up my business and, and indicating what's on sale and what the best services I provide are, is going to have to be presented to the public in such a way as it is accessible to persons with disabilities. How would that website look like? And how much extra would it cost me, the small business operator, to make sure that my website was indeed accessible? Right. Well, I'll, first, I want to clarify, at least in Ontario, uh, what, we're, what we're talking about is, like I mentioned, those public uh, institutions uh, and then any private business over 50 employees. Okay. So it's not necessarily that, that a, you know, a small mom and pop shop that's uh, setting up their website for the first time uh, must uh, kind of take these into consideration. However, uh, the irony of all of this is that if you're starting from scratch, a lot of these accessibility best practices or, or uh, uh, kind of commitments 
are actually also just web design and development best practices. So I think what this is really impacting are organizations that either have a legacy uh, website infrastructure, maybe they've had it for five years, six years, and they didn't take accessibility seriously initially. Now you're talking about some pretty significant costs potentially, uh, but there's also some pretty significant fines. Uh, So, Uh, you know, the the cost would be significant if you have to start from scratch. But if you are starting from scratch, there is really no major additional cost to making sure that you've you've complied. And I'll give you you and your your listeners two examples that I think everyone could could understand easily. So right now there's a, a web design or a digital design or even just a marketing design kind of trend towards the use of, of pastel colors. You see this on, especially like technology companies, uh, websites and, and products. Um, you know, if any of your listeners use uh, uh, WellSimple or these kinds of, of new age apps, like they're, they kind of embrace this design trend that has this uh, pastel uh, color scheme, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. It's great. It makes you think of Easter every day. Uh, but oftentimes you'll see white text, uh, small white text uh, showing up on these pastel colors. Well, that's not accessible. A person who has sight loss is not going to be able to see in that color contrast ratio what those words actually say sure. on that pale blue background. That's like an example. And we, we see this very often, though. And then uh, another uh, example, say you're someone who's, who's fully blind and, and uh, you know, requires or, or relies on a screen reader, which is a, an application you install either on your desktop, your, your iPad, your, your, your uh, mobile phone, etc. Mm-hmm. And the screen reader, if, if you think of like descriptive video when yes. you're watching TV, so not just closed caption, but true descriptive video, uh, basically a screen reader is explaining the entire structure and content of a website or an app to that, that blind user. So it would say things like the navigation says A, B, C, D, E, uh, and, uh, you know, the content says this, uh, but it also says images are this or video is this. Now, what happens if an image, uh, these, these apps are not uh, artificially intelligent. They're not looking at the image and saying, oh, we see trees and, and people uh, hanging out underneath them right. and whatever. So how does that screen reader know the context of that image? Well, we need to tell uh, the screen reader what is actually in that image through what's called alternative text or alt text. And if we have not done that on all the images on the site, then that screen reader will literally not know what's there. And what if, you know, you're an organization that is um, trying to convey important message information, product information, service information, et cetera, via that image, all of a sudden, that user is, you know, not able to access it. So, the, you know, what accessible uh, design and development would then say, making sure that all that alt text uh, for images, videos, et cetera, is present so that essentially they have a descriptive video experience uh, when using those screen readers. So those are like two very, very basic, but, but you know, more digestible examples of, of what we're talking about here. Joining us from Ottawa is Dave Hale. Mr. Hale is the founder and partner of a company called Craft and Crew. And they are a web design company. How long have you been in business, Dave? Uh, we, just over 10 years. We celebrated our 10th anniversary this past September. And uh, is your client base Ontario primarily, or do you have clients across Canada and around the world? Uh, the latter. So, um, you know, e- even here in Ottawa, we um, uh, only a small percentage of our clients, uh, you know, many in, in Toronto, we have several in Western Canada and uh, and then, yeah, through the United States uh, make up the, the, the rest. 
And a lot of the times you will spend with clients working on ensuring that their websites, their digital presentation to the world is not only effective, but also accessible. Because in Ontario, uh, already, there's a law requiring businesses to do that. In British Columbia, there's a commitment to do that by 2024, which is not far away. Uh, What are the typical disabilities that we're talking about? You've already uh, talked about people, for example, Dave, with visual impairments. What other sorts of disabilities are there that people who have them still like to use the web? Well, I mean, you can kind of assume uh, some of the major ones. We we did talk about visual disabilities. If you have hearing loss, uh, that would be another really obvious example. If all of a sudden you're playing video or there's like sound cues or things like that. navigation uh, as well. If you're someone who um, is not easily able to, to navigate, say with the use of a mouse um, and you're using voice commands, right. um, those are things that we, we have to consider. So, you know, those are the three kind of big primary ones I, I would say we're, we're talking about here. Okay. And what, uh, in terms of compliance, are most people, uh, people who are now falling under the rules that, okay, you're, you're, you are in this group, you have to uh, com- comply with the, the new act to make sure that you uh, your website, your digital presentation is indeed digital. What are clients saying about this uh, in terms of complying? Are they grumbling and grousing or are they just seeing it as another wrinkle in the digital plot that just needs to be addressed and move on? Well, I think they've, uh, you know, organizations fall, fall into three camps. So uh, the first one is, um, you know, those who are kind of like, this just isn't a priority for us right now, which we hear uh, quite often, even with, especially in Ontario, uh, this act in place and some, some stiff fines uh, that are, are, are coming down uh, for folks who are not in compliance to the tune of $100,000 per day. Oh, my. Uh, but they are not compliant. Yeah. And so there are still organizations, you know, of course, I will not name names here, but uh, those we speak with who, who simply say for one reason or another, uh, we know about this. Uh, we, you know, we, we care, uh, but I put care in quotes because uh, then it's followed up with, uh, but it's just not a priority for us right now. Okay. Uh, quite disheartening. Um, the second camp are those who, who say, uh, you know, we've identified that we must do this. We don't want to face these fines. So yes, let's work together uh, to, to, you know, see what we need to do uh, to get up, up to snuff and, and to become compliant. Um, and then there's a third camp, which I think is, you know, as when you talk to organizations, and I'll, I will give a quick shout out to, to one of our clients uh, who I think falls into this camp, which is Rakuten Kobo, as in Kobo e-readers. And, you know, they actually have as one of their strategic pillars for the whole company, a commitment to diversity and inclusion. So they wrap kind of digital accessibility as part of that pillar sure. um, and take it very, very seriously, including employing people internally who are uh, who do have sight loss or blindness to also make sure that um, what, what's called lived experience testing is part of their effort. So it's not just meeting those guidelines, but like I said in the first part of the segment, also actually having someone who suffers from a disability uh, saying, yep, uh, not only does it meet a guideline, but I can actually use this thing. So I think those are the three buckets that organizations fall into. And, you know, we we would hope and, and love to see more falling into that ladder bucket um, as quickly as possible. Dave, tell us a little bit about uh, the partnership that you at Craft uh, and Crew have formed with the CNIB, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Well, it was interesting how it started. So in the late summer, early fall, 
uh, we started receiving uh, an influx of uh, of new leads of, of companies contacting us, basically saying, "Hey, uh, do you guys do ex- web accessibility work? The deadline's looming. That's and, right. You know, we we at least need to understand what we're facing here. And when I say an influx of leads, I mean three to four times more leads than we would normally get in a month, and all related to this this issue. Okay. So. I thought this was quite strange because we've been, you know, me, working with, with brands to, to meet these guidelines for, like I said, seven or eight years. Uh, but I it's the deadline, right? That it's the deadline, but still, I, I assumed that people were aware and that they weren't waiting until literally the 11th hour uh, to comply. So uh, we actually didn't have the resources to handle all these audits um, that, that we kind of had to do. And so I reached out to CNIB but for two reasons. One, to see if they could provide some relief uh, in assisting with these audits, knowing that they had a business services group called Frontier Accessibility that does this kind of work. Oh, okay. And also just to ask as a fact-finding mission, are, are you, exper- I mean, you're the national authority on this. Are you experiencing the same thing we are? To which they basically said, yes, uh, it's quite concerning that, uh, you know, despite uh, nearly a decade of, of uh, outbound communication and awareness that here we are in the 11th hour uh, kind of scrambling. And so uh, I think we, we realized together that uh, CNIB and their frontier accessibility units strength really is in, in doing that compliance audit work. Uh, and, and our strength is really in doing then the tactical execution work to take the outcomes of those audits and then implement them. Sure. Right. Okay. Here's what's wrong. Now let's let us help you fix it. Okay. That's it. So, so we basically, that, that's what the partnership uh, aimed to do, was letting each party stick to their strengths. Um, and uh, so, so that's kind of how things got formed. And so, so now uh, we are doing this kind of joint audit program uh, where CNIB and Frontier Accessibility really brings the, uh, the, the deep uh, practical knowledge of, of how to make digital properties uh, accessible to, to guidelines or better than. Uh, and then our team really bringing uh, kind of the, the uh, what is often seen as like the inverse, which is like still great uh, design and user experience and technical principles to the table. And there is kind of this debate of like, can you have a, a website that is fully accessible and still modern and, and following, you know, kind of modern design uh, best practices, which we, we fundamentally believe that you can. Right. And that's kind of what we're bringing to the table. So, Dave, is this, uh, again, this, this audit that uh, the CNIB team is providing and the follow-up that you do to make sure that uh, the compliance is achieved once the, the flaws have been discovered, is this service available to only in Ontario? Or can uh, people listening to you right now here in BC with a, a business and a website that perhaps needs a little tweaking uh, get in touch with you? for said audit yeah of course absolutely I, i'd say anyone around the world uh who who wants to reach out we'd be happy to to support um we are a little busy uh, these days but, oh, bad. um you know still happy to make space for for all but um uh, yeah it, it, you know while it may have been uh the ontario act that uh you know really sparked the partnership with cnib um uh you know the the more uh, kind of philosophical view is that we really do hope that uh, companies uh, the world over see um, that this is a bit of a, a forgotten issue. No kidding. Um, that, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, thank you very much for giving the platform this morning, but, you know, the, it hasn't dominated the media cycles uh, 
for the last little while, even with the deadline in Ontario looming. And so, uh, yeah, you know, there's, I could have gone on uh, for, for another hour, probably just talking about, you know, various stats or like when you think about the size of the market that we're talking about, uh, an organization potentially, you know, leaving in the wind uh, and the buying power of those people. Um, you know, it, to me, it just actually makes good business sense uh, to care about this issue, not just the the kind of the social good angle of it as well. No question about it, David. I think for some listening to the program this morning, it's the first time they've had they've been exposed to the notion and are all of a sudden going, well, of course, it makes perfect sense. I just hadn't thought about it before. Dave, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, our, I would direct our, our listeners to your website, craftandcrew.ca for follow ups. Dave Hale in Ottawa. Thanks for this. We'll do we'll talk again. Thank you, Sterling. Have uh, a great day. Uh, you too. Dave Hale in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. She is a reporter based in Victoria who writes for the Narwhal, and she's been following the Site C Dam file for quite some time and has an update for us this morning. Sarah Cox is on the line from Victoria. Sarah, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's great to have you with us. And a lot has happened since uh, you and I spoke a couple of months ago a matter on the matter of the Site C Dam, not the least of which is an announcement from the Premier of the province a week or so ago uh, asking for not one but two new expert reviews of the Site C Dam file and it's citing safety concerns. What can you tell us? Flesh that, that, uh, that headline out for us, Sarah, because there's a lot going on behind it. For sure. Indeed, there is a lot going on. And that that announcement by the Premier during a, a bi-weekly media briefing came as a bit of a surprise to everybody, I think. Um, the last we had heard, um, the province had commissioned uh, Peter Milburn to do a, an independent report looking into the geotechnical problems that were announced last summer. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, the report supposedly had been submitted to Cabinet, and then all of a sudden we're hearing that um, there have been two independent safety experts commissioned to uh, look into the geotechnical problems. Now, some people had said all along that Mr. Milburn, while being very capable, just didn't have the geotechnical expertise to examine these problems, which uh, could determine whether or not the project might ever be completed. Right, yeah. And so it, tr- it turns out that these two experts are actually going to function as one panel. One is from Norway, the other is um, uh, supposedly from the United States. But that is basically all we know, because the government has not released the terms of reference for their report. Well, and also, how long has the government had this Milburn report? Um, by some reports, it, it was sent in late last year to um, Energy Minister Bruce Ralston. Cabinet has certainly had it um, for about a month, if not longer. We Again, we don't know the terms of reference for that report. It has not been released. Right. The government has promised to release it, but in the meantime, uh, these problems have been known about for, for quite a long time now. There's been no uh, fulsome public update since last summer. The update that did happen last summer only took us to the end of March last year. Um, we didn't get information beyond that. BC Hydro has not submitted uh, the last two quarterly Site C updates, which would give us some uh, update on the geotechnical troubles and the budget. 
and um, there have been more and more fingers pointing to the silence uh, and the secrecy that is surrounding this project right now. Well, then the reason I ask you about the report and why we haven't seen it is because the government, of course, and we've just we just went through this exercise with a report the government commissioned about long-term health care uh, facilities across the province, and they sat on that one for a while, and then when they finally were sort of pressured to release it, it was, oh, don't worry about it, it's no big deal, it's kind of complimentary, so no, no biggie. Well, it turns out it wasn't terribly complimentary and was quite detailed. And uh, one assumes that if this is even less complimentary and more detailed, all the more reason for the government to sit on it. So, Sarah, there's that. But let's talk about the issue, the problems. It's all geotechnical. So let's talk about what that means and where they're building Site C. For sure. So Site C, which is the largest publicly funded infrastructure project in BC's history, which has been spiraling um, out of budget, uh, out of um, its set budget for years, um, is being built in a, in a valley that is notorious for landslides. It, it's being built in this location, despite the fact that BC Hydro's own commissioned reports years ago warned that there could be a problem with the geotechnical uh, stability of the project due to the the nature of this valley. Sure. And indeed, this has proven to be the case. And um, it means that the, the dam structure itself, the powerhouse and the spillways, the foundation on which they rest actually needs to be shored up. And this is after tons and tons of concrete has already been poured. And so this is a very, very serious problem. In last July, BC Hydro said that there were profound geotechnical problems that they didn't know how to fix, how much it would cost, or how long it would take. Since then, we've had absolutely no update beyond the Premier's announcement that there would be these two safety experts appointed. For some people, that's um, too little, too late. They say there should be a complete uh, independent safety investigation, not just having just two experts look at a fix that's been uh, supposedly proposed by BC Hydro, which mm-hmm. nobody has seen, and, uh, and on and on we go. Well, let's talk a little bit about on and on, because uh, there is a little, there's, there's, there's just a monstrous price tag attached to all of this, of course, Sarah. But let's go back. How long has on and on actually been going on? When did this whole thing get, get uh, lift off? And how much has it cost us so far? So the Sightsee Dam was um, uh, announced by former Premier Gordon Campbell in 2010. It then went to... Um, uh, an independent uh, review. That review concluded that that BC didn't need the energy in the time frame presented by BC Hydro, and also flagged enormous uh, environmental um, costs and uh, costs to uh, Treaty Eight First Nations of this project. Um, the government at the time changed the law to exempt the Watchdog BC Utilities Commission from determining if the project was in the public interest. Um, it uh, it then um, increased the budget. So the, the dam had been examined at a $7.9 billion budget by that time uh, when by the um, independent uh, environmental assessment. 
Then the price tag went up to $8.8 billion. Um, then it, the NDP government came in and approved another $2 billion. That stood us at $10.7 billion. That was before the geotechnical problems. Now, some people are saying that this could cost up to $15 billion. Right. And uh, Harry Swain, who chaired that uh, Environmental Assessment Joint Review Panel, is a former federal deputy minister. Um, he has just written an article in Focus magazine saying that we could be looking at an $8 billion loss associated with this project. That's not the price tag. That could be the loss. What? So this is a huge amount of money, and there's a lot of debate about whether or not BC ratepayers and ultimately taxpayers would be better off if we just wrote off the sunk costs and walked away from it. Well, there is that too. And I remember, I'm glad that you had a moment to take to uh, to remind us of the timeline involved because many of us will remember the big sell that went behind this pitch from, from Gordon Campbell and company when they first announced it and brought it on stream. This, Sarah, was going to be the cash cow. This was, it was, we were sold this as Newfoundlanders were sold Churchill Falls a decade earlier. This was going to be the cash cow that would guarantee X amount of cash flow into British Columbia. We would be selling excess power to California and other jurisdictions which who, who never have enough uh, nuclear, anyone? Anyway, uh, that, that, was, that was the pitch that this was, we had to, sure, we had to pony up a few dollars, but once this thing got up and rolling, it was just going to make us money forever. Well, the problem is that the energy market has changed. It's changed quickly and drastically, and uh, the project, even at $10.7 billion, is uneconomical. We can never sell the energy for what it is going to cost us to produce it. Uh, there are so many renewables coming online. There are so many developments in, in storage. Um, we can sell uh, the power as, as we do sell our excess power um, to the United sure. States, but it will be at a fraction of the cost of what it, it costs to produce the power. So I guess then, um, why, the, uh, why is there, if this ter- is turning into just a ginormous black hole for taxpayer cash, and it's certainly looking and feeling that way, why hasn't anyone put the brakes on this? Is it because we've sunk so much dough already, Sarah, we'd look stupid? But if we just walked away? Well, that, that was the explanation when the NDP government decided to continue the project in late 2017. At that point in time, we'd sunk about $2 billion into it, and, and BC Hydro pegged the cost at remediating the site at about another $2 billion. That was never independently assessed. And, and ironically, there was absolutely no money in the budget at all for remediation at the end of, of the project's lifespan. Right. Um, so that was the argument, was that we put too much into this, we have to move ahead. But people have um, pointed to that as, a, as the sunk cost fallacy. If you, if, you buy an old car, if you buy a car and you keep pouring money into it, at some point it just becomes cheaper to walk away from that car and, and independent energy experts, um, including from the C.D. Howe Institute, uh, are saying that we're at that point now with this project that we will actually save money uh, by walking away from it and just writing it off. Um, and U.S. Uh, in the, uh, U.S. energy economist Robert McCullough has done a, did a report last year saving that we would save an initial 116 million dollars a year by by walking away from the project. Joined by Sarah Cox from the Narwhal, and Sarah's on the line from Victoria. We're talking the Site C Dam, which uh, tends to come and go, and it's back again, Sarah, and in part uh, because of this uh, report, this admission by the Premier a week or so ago. 
uh, that he has, in fact, commissioned two uh, reviews, two people who will be working in tandem uh, to talk more about the safety concerns surrounding Site C. And there's also uh, the West Moberly First Nation, uh, which has written a letter to the premier. Uh, They're also threatening court action. In fact, they're involved in court action to try to stop this. And in the letter to the to the First Nation, uh, uh, to the premier, the First Nation's lawyer uh, does refer to the fact that construction continues at uh, Site C to the tune of $100 million a month. So that's the kind of money we're spending. BC Hydro is spending. Uh, very, very little information being shared. And by the looks of things, Root Canal is going to be a whole lot easier to perform on Mr. Hogan than getting information about Site C. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, Treaty 8 First Nation announced this week that they are going to court to, to seek the release of all documents related to the geotechnical problems um, and all documents related to the safety review. And um, it's it's um, quite astounding for many people that, that the, they actually have to resort to this. This is a publicly funded project. Yep. It's being built uh, with uh, ratepayers and ultimately taxpayers' money. Um, and none, not a penny for the project will appear on our hydro bills until power um, starts to be produced. So we have not seen that impact on, on hydro bills yet. And West Moberly First Nations um, is has said that they are going to court to get that information. Right. And, and that information, we have tried uh, to get that. We've had to resort largely to freedom of information requests to get any information at all about the project. It's a project that um, an international hydro expert named Harvey Elwin, who has five decades of working on hydro projects around the world, including in China, um, said that he'd never seen such secrecy on a hydro project. And and Harry Swain, the the chair of that um, environmental assessment review panel for Site C, former federal deputy minister, um, he referred to the, the secrecy surrounding the Site C Project Assurance Board, which is supposed to be an oversight board. He he said it was the secrecy of North Korean quality. So we have this large publicly funded project proceeding with very little information about to the public. There's there's almost no information available about the hundreds of millions of dollars in no bid contracts going to people. There's no been no public update for almost a year. Um, uh, If you look at uh, the reports on the geotechnical problems, the budget just takes us up to the end of last March. We, we basically do not know what's going on, and the government is not uh, releasing these documents at this time. And it just doesn't pass the smell or the gut test very well at all, does it? I did open the phone lines up. Gord has been sitting there very patiently waiting to have a go at us. Gord, thank you for your patience. Good morning. Uh, yes, good morning. Um, I seem to recall that the uh, big LNG plant in Kitimat was going to be run by the power from Saitse Dam. Am, am I correct in that? Um, they have said that the the um, there's the government has hesitated to make a direct connection between Site C and LNG. Um, BC right now has uh, a ton of electricity. It's not apparent at all that even if um, some measure of electrification of the LNG industry were to occur, that Site C would be needed. And um, basically, there's also the cost factor, which is how much does the public subsidize uh, these type of operations. So, so originally, when, when Site C was proposed, one of 
the ideas was to power an emergent LNG industry. Yes, yeah. Um, that is for sure. But again, um, you have to look at this. We do public interest reporting. We need to look at this uh, from the public interest. The LNG industry is already getting huge uh, public subsidies, and uh, every indication is that if energy for the site C dam were used to uh, power some measure of the LNG industry, that it would also be heavily subsidized ah. by ratepayers. So, Gord, it wasn't a magic bullet after all, was it? Doesn't sound like it. All right. Appreciate the call. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, Sarah, this is uh, this is uh, uh, the secrecy surrounding the file is uh, and you're pointing out to international observers, let alone local taxpayers and voters who just just returned this government with a honking huge majority for the next four years. So does that mean they get to dance for four years and not tell us whatever they feel like not telling us? Because, hey, you voted for us. We're a majority. You get what you get. Well, I think that depends very much on the public and uh, the type of demands there are for accountability, which are certainly mounting. There are also um, calls mounting for a public inquiry into this project along the lines of the inquiry that happened with the Muskrat Falls Dam in Newfoundland and Labrador, yep. another project that was just enormously over budget, even though it didn't have the geotechnical problems that Site C has, it's still the power is still not online. Um, the cost is over $13 billion. Um, informed observers believe that will co- climb to $14 billion, and it will ultimately no doubt result in a federal taxpayer bailout of that particular project. So what do you think? You've been following this for quite a while. You know a lot more than we have time to talk about here. We'd be here till noon, and you'd still be in educating us on this file. How do you think it's going to shake out? Do you think there's a future for Site C, or has it just been it's the wrong project in the wrong spot shouldn't have been approached in the first place. I think that there needs to be far more transparency about this project and far less secrecy and that the books need to be thrown open for the public to have a look at. And I think it is only when people have all the relevant information in hand that they will be able to uh, make a decision about that. Again, there's so much at stake here. It, it should not be a decision that's being made, made behind closed doors in secrecy. Um, the public needs to know far more. We shouldn't have to resort to uh, a public inquiry to get that information, to get that information about why, for example, there's a, a $10 billion no-bid contract yeah. given to officers and directors of a BC-numbered company, mm. um, that sort of thing. Um, and the numbered company, the officers and directors uh, were top executives of, of Petro West. That's the Alberta company that went bankrupt and was dismissed from the main civil works consortium. There are all sorts of questions here about the spending of public money. And you and I are, are going to have to going to have I'm gonna have to leave it there, Sarah, because I'm fresh out of time and as always terribly grateful for yours. Let's uh, just make a date right here, right now to carry on with this. Uh, we'll give them a couple more months to try and figure it that all out. Uh, Sarah's excellent reporting on Site C is a available at thenarwal.ca. Keep it up, Sarah. We appreciate the good work very much. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Good to have you with us. Self-employed Canadians who are being asked to repay the Canada Emergency Response Benefit after a Canada Revenue Agency error are scaling up their pressure on the government to allow them to keep the benefits. This past Wednesday, Green Party MP Paul Manley presented a petition to the House of Commons that had received more than 7,000 signatures over a month 
asking the government to allow self-employed CERB recipients to retroactively use their gross self-employed income instead of net to assess their eligibility for benefit. The government's made a huge mistake, said Mr. Manley, who joins us now from his writing, Nanaimo Ladysmith on Vancouver Island. Uh, Mr. Manley represents the Green Party for that writing. Paul, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me on. Well, it's good uh, to have you with us. We had Alan Lantier on the program last week, Paul Manley. Now, Alan is a very distinguished member of the accounting fraternity in Canada, a former advisor to the Ministry of Finance and the Canada Revenue Agency. And we had Alan on to try and describe the CERB mistake. And it's all about net versus gross. Paul, could you walk us through the, the nuts and bolts of the mistake again, please? Sure. I think, first of all, just to put it in context, you know, when, when we had a lockdown come down in March, the government was in a real hurry to make sure that uh, we we could provide income for people who were forced to stay at home. And, uh, you know, all of us, all MPs, all parties, were, were working with the government in a Team Canada approach. And we had legislation that... Um, well, really, we had the prime minister making an announcement, and then we had civil servants who were also in lockdown, working at home, right. trying to develop uh, legislation. And when we brought the leg- when the legislation was brought forward, it uh, had very minimal debate. Um, normally, a bill like this would take months to develop. It would go through um, second reading. It would go to committee. The sure. committee would pull it all apart. Then we'd bring it back for third reading and more debate, and then we'd vote on it. Instead, we pushed it through because we knew Canadians needed financial support. We're asking people to stay at home because of the pandemic. Sure. And so there, it was a, it's a piece of legislation that's full of holes. And, you know, this, this CERB Act, it didn't define self-employed income, and it did not mention expenses or deductions. And shortly after it was passed, the finance minister stated in both press conferences and in testimony before the Senate that uh, CERB eligibility would be based on earned revenue. Well, I'm a small business. I've been a small business for a long time, and I know that revenue is a business term that means income before expenses or gross income. Right. And people started to apply. CERB agents or the uh, CRA agents uh, were giving out information that wasn't that they thought it was gross. Um, so people were calling people were calling Revenue Canada, or the Canada Revenue Agency, Paul, and asking. So do I qualify? Where and and, and the agents on the phone were saying were saying, yeah, well, you do, yeah, yeah, exactly. So lots of that was happening. There's there's examples across the country of different people who phoned in and asked if they were eligible and what the eligibility amount was, and it was. They were told, you know, five hundred or five thousand uh, dollars. If you earn five thousand dollars in twenty nineteen, it doesn't matter whether it was uh, self employed or from employment. People would ask if it was before or after expenses, and they were told that it was uh, before their expenses. And um, so, lots of people applied in good faith, and uh, then got these letters in December. Four hundred and forty one thousand of them. Uh, the, the government's calling them education letters. It's rather Orwellian, but basically saying that people 
uh, may not be eligible and may have to pay back everything that they got from the CERB, which could, in some cases, was up to $14,000. So when 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 you're a, a recipient, suppose you're an independent business person who felt uh, that they qualified for the CERB under the conditions de- defined by the government, made a phone call to uh, revenue to the revenue folks, and they said, yeah, yeah, you're fine, go ahead. Uh, and so in good faith, you apply for and receive the benefits. I, I would assume for many, Paul, it would total 12 thousand dollars so now uh, and and a lot of people not all but a lot of people who applied for these benefits did so because they really needed the money and your explanation about why this whole process was expedited and you took the team canada approach and didn't uh, subject the the bill to the typical debate process was because we were in a national emergency completely understood but in the process the the government people themselves on their own side got their signals crossed up. So now there are 441,000 people who may or may not owe the the feds 12 grand. Is that where we stand this weekend, Paul? Uh, it is, and it's actually up to $14,000. Um, and there are stories of, of um, government MPs on, you know, the, the Liberal MPs who didn't know what the rules are and gave their constituents uh, the same advice. That if you had five thousand dollars gross income, you were eligible to apply. So there was clearly lots of confusion all around. Um, you know, when when uh, the messaging from the finance minister, the the agents on the phone, the the CRA did change. Um, you know, in the Q and A, they added information really late in the game, um, late late in April, and I've read through. Uh, the website again, because it says over and over on the website that income of at least $5,000 may be from employment or self-employment for CERB eligibility. Right. And there's no mention of gross or net until you get really far down the page in the Q&A. And in late April, uh, the CRA, after, you know, after people had already been applying, they quietly added the clarifying statement that eligible self-employed earnings were net pre-tax income, gross income, less expenses. So they weren't uh, announcing that change, like they weren't making that uh, really clear. And even after that, uh, CRA agents didn't didn't know the correct information. So they amend, they amended their thought, own information and, and didn't bother. Uh, they amended it in one spot on one form, and that was the end of the amending. Yeah. They, they amended it on the Q&A page right. way, way down. And even after people got these letters and were phoning into the CRA and asking, they were still getting the wrong information. Right. So it's, you know, it's clear that uh, they hadn't provided the information all the way down, you know, through the chain of command to... Uh, to the workers. And in some cases, people were uh, calling their members of parliament, as people do when there's a problem with the government, especially if your member of parliament happens to be a member of the government, where you go, well, I've got almost an inside track here. This person will know what to do. So you call your MP, and the MP says, uh, says and yet it says, it, you ask the big Serb question, and the MP gives you the wrong information as well. Now, that's twice in good faith that you've applied to inform yourself, and you've been improperly informed, Paul. I would say there's this rather strong basis for a petition yes absolutely i was we were getting lots of calls about this before christmas and people really 
not set. And, you know, in some cases, and I've, I've heard backlash from this as well. Like people saying, well, if you only earned $5,000 in 2019, why do you deserve to get $14,000 in CERB money? Well, there are people who, you know, are self-employed, took maternity leave, but don't get paid for maternity leave. And, um, you know, so they earned less in 2019. I had somebody who had to take time off because uh, of an illness. And um, they didn't earn as much in 2019. They earned, if they if the government was looking at 2017 or 2018, no problem. They earned way more than uh, $5,000 uh, gross. Um, other situations where, where somebody had a death in the family, they spent the last year, you know, with their father uh, going through, you know, the palliative care. Sure, and not making and any money. Yeah. Working, not making any money. And so 2019... If you base it on one year's income, yeah, you're going to find lots of people and lots of reasons why people maybe earned less and, and their 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 net income that year was less than $5,000. And we can't judge people, you know, based on a line, a line item in one year of their tax thing. So I, I just wanted to say that because I get criticism about this in, you know, emails and phone calls saying people don't deserve this. People, we ask people to stay at home. We asked people not to go out to look for work if they needed work, uh, not to try to do anything to make ends meet. We're in a lockdown. Stay at home. This is what you need to do. And right. when, when we ask people to do that, we need to take care of them. And so that's, you know, the, the situation that, that people were in. Well, I'm just saying now, is it, you know, after people have used that money to pay their rent and bills and feed their families, yes. that money's spent and we can't come back and ask them to pay it back. Paul Manley is joining us from Nanaimo Ladysmith on Vancouver Island, where he's the Green Party MP. He is also the sponsor of a petition presented to the House of Commons a couple of days ago to fix the CERB self-employment eligibility error signed by 7,000 Canadians. Uh, Paul, uh, we have some callers on the line. I hope to get to in a second. But uh, the the uh, government, the minister responsible for this file is Carla Qualtro, who's from uh, the lower mainland here in, in British Columbia. Uh, they haven't, the, the government has not had a lot to say about this, except that, well, we're actively looking at options to respond to the concerns raised by some self-employed Canadians. That's not exactly uh, the kind of reassurance uh, the people who are signing your petition are looking for. No, I think that, that, um, you know, one of the things we did ask for before Christmas was that the Prime Minister make a statement and tell people to... uh, to not worry worry about this and we actually asked for for this to be cleared up before christmas you know we're at the darkest time of the year this is a really difficult time of year for people uh w- without a pandemic going on and people are locked down and isolated and uh struggling and to to have this hanging over their heads when they're still financially struggling yeah. is not the right thing to be doing the government needs to just clear this up and and uh, be done with it Let's let's go to the phones. Uh, Dave is on the line here. Dave, thank you for waiting. Good morning. Hey, good morning to you, Sterling, and to Paul. Um, yeah, I just wanted to call in uh, with a little bit of a personal story because I did receive um, one of those letters that you may. Oh, not so you're one of the four hundred forty-one thousand. Okay, uh, I'd be in that in that, and and subsequent to that, they cut off the uh, CRB. Okay, no longer with without. And the thing is, Sterling, you have absolutely no recourse. I've called. I've talked to a CRA. I've pleaded my case. I made thirty-six thousand dollars plus um, in a 
a settlement in 2019 from my employer from 2018, which included my um, salary continuance, my bonus, et cetera. They put it all into a lump sum. According to EI, that's employment income, and they told me they clawed back what they needed. All of a sudden, I get the letter from CRA saying, wait a minute, that's not employment income. We want that um, uh, CERB money back, and we're cutting you off from CRB, and I have zero dollars coming in. I'm desolate, uh, des- destitute here, and I have called, they, I'm supposedly a CRA, um, a, a senior CRA person will get back to you. That's been two, over two months. Right. I guess they'd be going to an MP. I don't know. That's uh, it's, it's just crazy the amount of power they have, yeah. and yet you uh, have no recourse. I, mean, I have considerable sympathy for your situation, Dave, and I thank you for sharing it with us. Mr. Manley, these are the type of individual citizen situations you hear about from individual Canadians on a daily basis. Yeah, I would suggest that Dave contact his MP about this because, uh, you know, there are back channels to the CRA and he can, uh, they, his MP can take this to the minister. And, uh, you know, th- these examples are important for the government to hear. And I compiled examples, like we sent them pages and pages of different examples of uh, people who were hit by by uh, these letters, but also people that were just falling through the cracks with these programs and we're asking people not to not to work, not to to be out in the community and uh, as much as possible. And we need to make sure that people are taken care of financially. And so your recommendation to our caller, Dave, is uh, follow up because he mentioned uh, he had considered talking to his member of parliament, uh, but hadn't done so yet. And you're saying that perhaps that uh, Dave should take that step because there might be some back channel work that could be of some benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's what you know. That's what we're here to do is to advocate for our constituents. Paul, what's uh, what's the nuts and bolts of the petition uh, in terms of the process? You presented it to the House. Uh, has it been accepted? What the, what are the formalities? Yeah, once it's tabled, the government has forty five days to provide a written response, and they will table that in the House of Commons. They'll send it to the main initiators of the petition, and they'll publish publish the response. I mean, the key thing with doing doing these things is normally, like a thirty day petition over a Christmas holiday wouldn't gather a lot of signatures. Sure, but um, uh, this one this one did, considering uh, that it's not it's not the same as doing uh, one of these online petitions, which is a real easy plug and play. You have to go through a verification process with an e petition. Uh, it's not as easy to share on social media, but it pressures the government to. Get something do done. And yeah, if I, I, if Paul, if I direct, thing. if I direct our listeners to your website, paulmanleymp.ca, that petition is available. You can link that person to uh, through your website to become a signatory to the petition. Correct? No, it's already closed. Oh, really? Once I table, yeah, it's, it closed uh, last Saturday. And I tabled it on Wednesday. All right. So we'll leave it there. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. I'm grateful for yours. We will talk again as this petition finds its way through the bureaucracy. Thanks for the, doing this this morning, Paul. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Sterling. Take care. You too. Paul Manley, MP Nanaimo Ladysmith on the line. Digital Ladders is a series of programs designed to improve the digital literacy of British Columbia's arts, culture, and heritage sector. Says so right on their website. Sue Bealey is with us. Sue is the co-designer and co-facilitator of the Digital Ladders program. Sue Bealey, good morning and thanks for joining us today. 
Morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. Tell us more about Digital Ladders and for whom it is intended. Well, Digital Ladders was kind of, it birthed a few years ago, and it was in response to a Canada Council um, initiative of wanting to help the arts and culture sector all across Canada get more um, literate and more um, enabled to use digital tools in okay. their work. Uh, sort of saw that the culture sector was sort of lagging. Um, so Brenda Ledley, the executive director at the BC Alliance for Arts and Culture, invited me in, and we had a great chat and started dreaming. And uh, one of my uh, co-conspirators, uh, Robert Wimet, who I've worked with for years in all this sort of how to bring people into the digital universe, uh, and I started collaborating on Digital Ladders. And the idea was to create a multi-level kind of program that allowed people to start where they were at, not feel at all any shame or badly uh, about their digital literacy, find a spot where they could engage on something that felt meaningful to them. And come into a sort of uh, fun and inspiring learning environment so that they could start to kind of up their game. So the idea, and, I'm sorry, so yeah. the idea would be that if you're an actor or a painter or a sculptor or a, 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 a musician, some kind of performer, and you need the world to know who you are and what you do, uh, the digital medium is the way that most of us find out about each other these days, isn't it? Yes, and I'm going to go beyond the folks that you just met, uh, you listed. We are talking museum curators, we're talking dance choreographers, we're talking um, spoken word artists. We have had people from all different arts councils. We've had people partake in our program from all different parts of the system across um, the province. Yeah, it's a great, you never know who you're going to sit beside and what you're going to come up with or how your creativity from your perspective is going to lend to each other to kind of help apply some learning to something practical. And in today's virtual learning environment, Sue, I'm sure that this Digital Ladders program is available to people virtually. They can be on Vancouver Island or upcountry. They don't have to come to a classroom in Vancouver. Correct. And that was the irony is with COVID. Originally, Digital Ladders, our first uh, season was all in person, which was a hell of a lot of fun. I'll bet. Uh, and then, of course, we had to pivot, of course, to make everything um, virtual, which challenged us as designers. But we, we did it. And um, most of the programming actually through the program happened over the summer and fall. And the piece that is remaining still to offer for this, what I would call season of digital ladders, is these ask me, are these ask me anything lunch hours. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just had our first one. We have five more to go. Um, and they're really kind of rapid fire and fun. We've picked one of our faculty experts and we have the most amazing faculty folks that we work with who all have different expertise who are great teachers and a lot of fun and uh, they'll start each of these ask me anything with a 10 minute kind of micro presentation about the stuff that um, they know about the topic that we're addressing in that hour and then it really is meant to birth into a free-for-all where people really get to ask specific questions that for you know where they're at, what they need to know, and we're facilitating that so everybody learns in a group setting. One hour, we just had one. I could not believe how energizing it was yeah. and how fast it went. What do people ask about the most? There's a common denominator. You've been doing this for a while, and, and people come to the table with all sorts of personal uh, uh, interests and, and, and a position to advance, but they all have common interests and common questions. What's the most frequently asked question? 
Oh, frequently asked. I don't know if there is a frequently asked, but I'd say there's a couple themes. One is just how do I start? Yeah. Right? I feel like I don't know anything. I don't know what I don't know. How do I even start? And I'm scared, right? So we start. That's one set of folks that okay. we can bring in. The other is how do I make money, right? <laughs> okay. The other one is what technology do I need? Another is who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to work with so that I can take some of my ideas and see if I can actually implement them or if they're real? Another one is what kind of a budget would I write and where would I find funding? Interesting stuff. And I suppose once I become semi-literate in terms of being able to get my message out to people who are interested in who might be interested in what I'm up to, uh, how do I how do I follow up? How do I determine who those people are? I'm sure those questions come up as well, right? Uh, absolutely. How to find my audience? And here's here's the thing, Sterling. It's not just about like your own profile. So there's kind of three buckets we categorize of the kind of way to use digital tools. One is how do I organize myself or my organization? And how do we work online together? So where do we keep our records? How do we keep our um, our, our management system? Okay. Is that just sort of simple internal organization? Yeah. Number two. Then there's the, how do I reach my audience? How do I find them? How sure. do I let them know about me? How do I market? And then the third bucket, which is super exciting and where I think we're about to see a nice evolution um, in the culture sector is how do I use digital tools to be to use it for a better expression of my creativity. So how can we use digital tools to transform theater? How do we use digital tools to transform, uh, like, spoken word? How do we transform it for um, museum experiences, for dance, for uh, anything, really? So that's when we get super creative and where you can really play with technology in in a new way. It sounds like a lot of fun and your to use your word very energizing experience. Do people go to the arts uh, BC Alliance for Arts and Culture and uh, take it from there? That would be the best way to get at it. Um, there's actually a Digital Ladders website. So you Perfect. can go through it, the BC Alliance or the Digital Ladders website. And I just say the BC Alliance for Arts and Culture is an amazing organization. They have a hot newsletter with a sassy writer. Um, it's a great thing to subscribe to. It's amusing, and you find out about everything you need to know as it's happening. Sue Bailey, thanks for this this morning. And continued success with the Digital Ladders program. It sounds like a lot of fun. We appreciate your time today. Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Sue Bailey. Sue Bailey from the Digital Ladders Program. That's it for Julie and me. Mike Agarbo and the App Show is right around the corner. Have yourself a great week. We'll catch up to you next month. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.